Good morning. It's my privilege today to read uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. If I break out into song, it's because I used to sing this in chorus when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is such a delight to have you with us and so glad to see your faces here this morning. And if you're not already there, if you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're continuing on in our brief series of kind of an overview of uh, this wisdom book. And if you remember back to last week as we began working through chapter 1, we were introduced to this character named Solomon. He's, he's a king of Israel. He, we find him at the end of his life. He's approaching uh, the end of his life. He's kind of giving us this book as his memoir, his insight into what has led him to this point in his life. And here's this man who is wealthy and wise and powerful and resourceful, but he's also a skeptic. And it's part of what makes Ecclesiastes such a fascinating book in general, is that it's written not from the perspective of somebody who spent their entire life pursuing God and loving God and pleasing God and obeying God, but it's really written from the perspective of somebody who is doubtful about the necessity, the importance, or the centrality of faith to begin with. It's written from the perspective of somebody who says, maybe there is a God and maybe there's a God who's good, but certainly there has to be something in this life that can bring me satisfaction and pleasure and joy and meaning and worth. And so he spends his life, he devotes the youngest years of his life into his adulthood and now into the time of being an old man, trying to find out what life is all about. If faith is not all it's cracked up to be, then what is this life about? And for that reason, it's a fascinating book. 
Because it gives us a perspective that is unique in Scripture. It gives us that perspective of what is somebody who is doubtful about faith and doubtful about God and questioning the goodness or even the existence of God do with their life. So this man sets about to take advantage of everything this world has to offer. And he gives us kind of his thesis statement, which we covered last week in chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. He says it's all meaningless. Apart from God, apart from an understanding of who he is, this life has nothing to offer. And in chapters 2 through 6, what you really find is Solomon laying out the case, the support, the evidence for his findings. And the reason that we're not going through this kind of verse by verse or chunk by chunk as we might ordinarily with a, with a passage of Scripture is because as you work through those chapters, what you find is Solomon saying, do you think you're going to ha- find happiness in this? You're not. Do you think you're going to find it in that? You're not. And just when you think he's exhausted every conversation that he can have, he goes, and remember that thing we talked about back there? It's still not offering satisfaction. But my encouragement to you is to read it on your own because in it you do get a sense of where our hearts naturally wander, where we're trying to find our satisfaction and our meaning and worth and where we can't find it. If you take the time to read chapters 2 through 6, you find that Solomon has left no stone unturned. From educational pursuits to entrepreneurial success to all sorts of hedonistic pleasures, he finds no lasting meaning, significance, or happiness in those things. And so all of that really brings us to this unique text in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 this morning. It's likely the most famous portion of Ecclesiastes for exactly the reason that Matt mentioned, because how many of you, when you began to hear those words, don't raise your hands in case you're going to show your age here, those, those words immediately ran through your head, that old bird song, turn, turn, turn. Dave proudly raises his hand in the front row. And my first recollection of this text, likewise, is not actually from a sermon or even from reading scripture. It is from that song. And here's why it's stuck in my memory the way that it is. I can remember very particularly the first time I heard this song. It was probably circa 1991 or 92, which gives you a sense as to my age. And I remember seeing one of those lengthy commercials for the Time Life music collections. You remember those ads that were constantly on TV in the early 90s. And so some washed up star from the 60s or the 70s would come out and talk about how great the music of their youth was and then they'd start to show clips and you'd hear, hear the songs play and they'd show four or five songs they'd, they'd uh, stream vertically across the screen and then every fifth or sixth song there'd be a song written in yellow the title would be written in yellow and that was your indication that that's the song you're now listening to and I remember as a kid hearing the song Turn, turn, turn to everything there is a season. Turn, turn. I'm not going to sing it for you because I only know the 15 seconds of it that were actually in that commercial. But, but we, we find those lyrics from that song are taken almost word for word from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And here's the irony in that for me this week. As I was thinking back to that memory as a kid and thinking about that song, it occurred to me that that song at the time that I heard it was already about 30 years old. 
And now as I think back on it, that memory of me listening to a 30-year-old song is now about 30 years old. It's a weird time in life when you stop referencing things that happened three or five years ago and you start referencing decades that have fallen off since your memory last occurred of something that has passed. And And there's something a little bit melancholy about realizing that there's a song being sung about the passage of time and that your memory of that song is that it happened decades ago. And for some of you, the passage of that time is even more profound than it is for me. See, the truth is that the passage of time causes all of us to think. It puts us often in a melancholy mood. And perhaps there's a sense in which we look back with happiness or with pleasing memories or with joy, but there's also a sense of loss. And when you feel that, you are feeling the very same thing that Solomon was feeling when he wrote this text. It's like the song that we did sing together this morning that began this way, mine are days that God has numbered. And that idea comes from the Psalms where David says, before I was even born, every day I was ever going to live was written in your books. You knew my end from my beginning. You knew all of the passage of time in between. You knew everything about me, everything substantial, everything profound, everything that's known. You knew my skill sets and you knew how you wired me and you also knew everything that, I, everything that I've hidden. You know everything that's secret about me. All of that, God, is just as if it's laid out on a page in front of you. When we find ourselves in those moments of quiet reflection on the brevity of life, this text invites us not just to look with melancholy at days past, but to recognize that it is God himself that has planted something of eternal significance on our hearts. And I want you to see where we find that idea and ultimately the hope that it provides in this text this morning. Look with me, if you would, at the first eight verses. I'm not going to read them again because of their familiarity and because of their simplicity, but, but what you find in those poetic stanzas is an encapsulation of the monotony and the brevity of this life on earth. And it starts with this very stark declaration. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and harvest, to tear down and to build, to weep and to laugh, to mourn and to dance, and on and on it goes. But here's the ultimate point that Solomon wants you to see as he lays out all of those comparisons. He wants you to see this, that for as much control as we often think we have over our lives, we are all far more influenced by seasons and forces and events and circumstances beyond our control than we care to realize. The control that we feel like we have in our life is to a large extent an illusion. That there are all of these circumstances and all of these influences far beyond your control or power or influence that are constantly affecting you. And the march of time going on in your life creates a pattern, a predictability to your life. The details may change from person to person, but the trajectory is the same. A time to be born and a time to die. And when, our, when we are young, 
life seems endless, doesn't it? I mean, I remember back to being a kid and summertime in particular between school sessions and summer just felt like it lasted forever. But then as you grow older and you get a job and you get a family and maybe you have kids, you now have all of these poignant reminders in your life of the marching on of time and suddenly you find yourself wishing you could slow things down. And all of that, says Solomon in verse 9, leads one to begin to question the significance of life. If life is that short, if it is that predictable to a large extent or another, if it is that monotonous at times, what is it all about? What contributions have I made? What legacy can I actually leave? What is the point? And now here's where the conversation takes an interesting turn in Solomon's writing. We find it in verse 10, and here's what he says. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. In other words, the business of life the humdrum, the ordinary, the everyday, the predictable, the seemingly insignificant is actually purposefully and intentionally given to us by God. In his sovereignty and in his sovereign goodness, he has woven purpose and intentionality and design into the world that he's created. A purpose and an intentionality and design that we may or may not be aware of, but nonetheless exists. There is a design and a plan to what our lives look like, even when it's most familiar and ordinary. And then he continues by saying this in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. God's timing, says Solomon, is a beautiful thing. And our initial inclination when we think about God's timing in our life and the way that he works or seemingly doesn't work when we want him to do something particular is to think that God moves on entirely the wrong schedule. Why can't he do the things that I want him to do in the timing that I want to do them? Because I can see, even in my limited perspective, how helpful it would be to experience this or to, or to go through that or to receive this in my life. Our tendency is to imagine that if we were given the opportunity to create for ourselves everything that we needed for our life, if we were somehow able to give that to ourselves as a gift, our life would finally be happy. But the problem with that presumption is we assume that we know everything that God knows. And so when Solomon writes here that God's timing is a beautiful thing, the Hebrew word that he uses that's translated in our Bibles, beautiful, has a couple of meanings. Yes, it has that idea of aesthetic beauty, but also it's that idea of something that is right or pleasing. So I was trying to think about how to illustrate it, and I must have been nostalgic for the 90s this week because all of my illustrations come from that decade. It wasn't intentional, but if you remember the, the art fad uh, of the late 90s, there was something called 3D computer-generated art. Do you remember that? I'm really going back in the time machine here. I get this, right? This is 25 years ago. 
computer-generated art. It's seemingly, I was, it was a joke, by the way, random, random patterns and colors laid out on a page. And, and, and if you want to spend some time, if you want to do what I did this weekend, waste an embarrassing amount of time, just Google 3D computer-generated art and then just spend an inordinate amount of time looking at it on your computer because it's incredible. And what you do is you look at this seemingly random pattern and, and color that's laid out on the page in front of you, and it looks like nothing. It kind of looks like a rug, maybe, something like that. It has, has no discernible meaning to it, but if you look at it long enough, and eventually if you kind of unfocus your eyes, you see an image burst off of the screen. It is weird, wild stuff. And the trick is to to unfocus your eyes, and, and as you gaze at that image, as if by magic, three dimensional images come to light. And that is, in a sense, how God's timing is beautiful. We look at it from our limited two-dimensional perspective, stuck in time, limited by our own understanding, limited by our own imaginations, limited by our own minds, and it seems as if life is just random and chaotic. Maybe there's a sense of pattern to it, and to the extent that we can even see the pattern, it maybe seems boring and monotonous, but what Solomon is saying is if you were able to see the whole picture, if you could actually take a step out of time, if you could, as as it were, unfocus your eyes, what you would see is a beauty and an intricacy and a design that is so beyond your comprehension and so beyond your understanding that it would make you marvel at the wonder and the mystery of who God is. You'd be able to see an ornate beauty in the how and the when and the why of things happening. And you can think about this practically even in your own life. Think back about the different things you've wanted at different points in your life. For some of you, maybe it's something as simple as a driver's license, or maybe it's a relationship that you really wanted, or maybe it's that degree in college, or that first job, or the promotion, or the family, or whatever it is. If you had been able to lay out and design your own plan for your own life, it would look nothing like it does now, and most likely it would not have been better. We can all think back to those moments and times where we wanted things and we were even frustrated at what we were unable to have, where it seemed like God was operating too slowly or holding back what we viewed as good. But then we could turn around and give example after example after example of how God's timing and plan were infinitely better than anything we could have imagined or orchestrated. And in those moments of recognition, it's as if God unfocuses our eyes just enough to see the real picture. We're able to see how in his timing, he brought about beautiful things that could have happened no other way. So John Piper said it this way, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. And so Solomon, having addressed the beauty of God's sovereignty, now returns his attention to explaining the dissatisfaction of the human experience. In other words, what does God's sovereignty and plan and timing have to do with my misery or my discomfort or my dissatisfaction or my lack of happiness? How do these two things actually work together? And the insight that he gives us here is really the explanation behind the vain experience of humanity apart from God, because look what he writes. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And the language here is so beautiful and poetic and in, its, in itself, and yet it's so profound. Here's what he just said. God has planted eternity in your heart. That as He was weaving together your body in the womb, as He was designing you and gifting you and placing you, in time and geography, He also implanted in you, as it were, a desire for eternity. An awareness that there is more to this life than this life. It's the thing that makes it so hard to be a truly convinced atheist. Where you force yourself to fight against every indication, externally and internally, that there must be something bigger than here. There must be meaning in the chaos. There must be redemption in the brokenness. And so when he says that God has planted eternity into your hearts, what he's saying is this, when God created humanity, he created us for perfect, unbroken communion and relationship with him. We were made to be with him. We were made to enjoy him. We were made to find our happiness in him internally. We were never intended to live apart from God. Do you understand that you weren't designed to just live 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years on this earth? As brief as our life is, do you understand that you were actually designed for something that was infinite and eternal? That that is the explanation, at least in brief, of why death is such a difficult thing in our life. Yes, it's difficult when we lose those whom we love and when we can no longer have conversations with people that we care about and where we can no longer receive a hug from those that love us. But what's truly difficult about death, at its very root, if you were to get to the problem underneath the problem, what you realize is that we were never intended to experience death to begin with. It's what leads Solomon later on in this text to say that it's better to go to a house of fe- or rather better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, because death is the end for all men. It forces us to come to grips with the fact that we live in a broken world that will constantly disappoint. And in experiencing that brokenness, it points us to the idea that we were created for something infinitely greater than anything we've experienced yet. And when sin entered the world that very first time, it tore apart the fabric of humanity. Everything that God had so carefully woven together was suddenly ripped apart. And a disconnect was created in us between our purpose and our experience. It's like seeing a wild animal raised in captivity. I mean, we love going to the zoo and we love seeing the lions, but whatever majesty and fear an apex predator creates is limited when he's locked in a room with painted walls. He is not experiencing the purpose for which he was designed. And in a similar way, we have been given a yearning for life beyond this world. We were created for more. We've been given a realization that there is more to life than what meets the eye. That there is more significance to be experienced than can be, 
than can be offered through the systems of this world and that all the happiness we experience here, while a good thing and a gift from God, is just a shadow of a deeper joy that can be found. It's what you see being renewed in the promises of God in the Old Testament. If we were to encapsulate all of the promises of God in the Old Testament, whether it's the the Adamic covenant where he said, I'm going to send a Messiah, a Savior, to release you from the bondage of this sin, or whether it was the promise given to Abraham or to Noah or to David, whatever promise it was that God gave, they kind of find their encapsulation in this idea that there is an eternal God who has made an everlasting covenant to give us a forever kingdom, in the words of one author. And whether or not we're aware of it, we have this eternal instinct to know and experience God completely. But try as we might, says Solomon, we are unable to understand the vastness, the mystery, and the wonder of the eternal in this life. We just get a foretaste of it. And so the temptation that faces men and women every single day is to try to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts, as some people have called it, with everything else. That is the story that Solomon tells in chapters 1 through 6. But here in this text, he gives us an insight, a clue, as to where we can find hope and meaning in a seemingly hopeless and meaningless existence. And his answer is that the hope of this world isn't found in this world to begin with. It's what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity when he said, if I find myself, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In other words, God placed eternity on your hearts. An awareness and a fear of the mortality that we live with and the seeming meaninglessness of life. God allowed that monotony, that simplicity into your life so that you would be led to the unequivocal conclusion that what you ultimately need is Him. It's what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, when he says, for now, in this life, in our present moment, it's as if we are seeing into a mirror dimly. But then, in the day to come, when we see Jesus Christ, we'll see face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul says, do you understand what the answer to the seeming meaninglessness of life ultimately is? It's the realization that, it, that someday when we cross that divide into heaven, we will be able to look into the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who loved us infinitely. The one who has loved us eternally the one who has made a covenant with us and pursued us at all costs and brought us into a family, the one who rescued us from ruination, and that in that moment you will know him as fully as he knows you right now. In other words, God's love for you is so great 
And His grace is so boundless that in His sovereign wisdom, He has placed signposts both within you and around you to capture your attention and to direct you to something better. And so now Solomon, writing at the end of his life, after all of his searching and all of his pursuits, has come to this right conclusion. And notice the observation he now gives us. Verse 12. He says, of all the wisdom I have in my life, here's here's what I want you to know about it. I perceive that there is nothing better in the world for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to men. Now here's why that statement is so striking. Solomon has spent all of this time in this book. He spends the first several chapters of this book talking about the idea that there is no satisfaction that can be experienced in this life through the things of this life. That if you're looking to work or you're looking to family or you're looking to sex or you're looking to depth of relationships or you're looking to some sort of physical happiness that can be achieved here, it will always fail. And yet his advice in this moment is to say this, when I understood that I was created for eternity, that God had wired me for something infinitely greater than what I've experienced, that he put the desire for an eternal experience on my heart and ultimately a desire that only he could provide for me in that moment of realization, I was actually now able to enjoy the things of this life. I was no longer looking for meaning or for happiness or for satisfaction in food and drink. And because I wasn't putting the expectation and the weight of glory itself onto those things, I could, for the very first time, enjoy them. Because I wasn't looking to my work for its meaning, I could actually go to my work and I could enjoy the toil that I participated in. In other words, the weight that I was placing on things in my life was far greater than those things could bear. And certainly we've all had that experience or will have that experience. So understand what that means. As great as your marriage might be, your spouse cannot do for you what God can do. And if you try to put the weight for all the satisfaction and happiness of your life onto that person, it will crush them and you with it. Your kids, for as amazing and as much of a gift as they are, if you put your weight of happiness and experience on your children, they will never be able to bear up underneath it. They will not be able to deliver. And conversely, as difficult as your marriage might be, or as much as your children may be struggling, you can still have hope and confidence and joy in this life because you can trust in the eternal and sovereign plan of a God who loves you infinitely. And if God is infinite and has set his love on you, how much more could he love you than he already does? If he is an infinite, eternal God and he sets his love on you, that means he has set his love on you infinitely and eternally. And when that realization clicks, 
It's not that life suddenly becomes easy or that pain is no longer experienced, but that it is, it is that everything has now properly been oriented in your life. It's a gift when you recognize that work can be done to the glory of God. When the monotony of your life, to the extent that you feel it's monotonous, now begins to turn because you realize that you're more, you realize that your life is more, deeper, more substantial and significant than just folding laundry or driving to work. But there is depth of meaning in those things because you are experiencing an eternal relationship with an eternal God who loves you eternally. It's a gift when we no longer try to find happiness in food and drink, but instead receive those things as good gifts, where we imbibe in them, realizing that God intended them for our enjoyment, that he created tastes and textures and flavors to stir our affections for him. That's what St. Augustine said in his book, Confessions, when he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. When I realize that my work and my accomplishments do not define my worth, my legacy, or my significance, the pressure is now removed. I can trust that God is in the business of weaving eternal meaning into the humdrum of my life, and so I'm able to enter into it with joy and thanksgiving. So your call is not wrapped up in your income or the perceived significance of your job or or the success or notoriety that you achieve. It's not even wrapped up in how good of a husband or wife or son or daughter or mother or father you are, though those things are good and right aspirations. Why? Because I now get to rest in the sovereign goodness of a loving God. I get to trust that I have a hope beyond this life. And that he is taking the most mundane moments that I experience and the most profound moments that I experience and he's weaving them together into an eternal tapestry. That he makes everything beautiful in its time. And nowhere do we find that experience expressed more vividly than the Lord's table. Because when we come into communion, when we approach this table and we receive the elements together, there's all sorts of significance wrapped up in what we're doing. It's a look back in our lives at what Jesus Christ did. And that as time marches on, as our hearts grow restless, we are able to look back to the death of Jesus Christ as the personification of love, as the perfect demonstration of what an eternal God does when he cares that much about immortal people, that he steps into time and he gives himself to the most cruel death known to man so that you can experience the fulfillment of what it is to experience eternity that has been stamped on your heart. And not only is it a look back, it's a look at the present. It's a reminder of the communion that we have with God, not just in the future, but right now. That if you're here and a believer, he indwells your heart. That the Holy Spirit of God resides in you as a temple. And that we have communion one with another.
different backgrounds and experiences and opinions. But in the moment where we come to the table, we realize we are on equal footing in the sight and love of God. And we have a common union together. A realization of family. But it is also a look forward. Because when Jesus sat at the table with the disciples and partook of this meal that we remember when we gather in communion, he said, I will not again drink of the fruit of the vine until we drink it together in the kingdom. In other words, Jesus, as we speak, is figuratively setting aside the best wine and the best bread and the best food to be experienced with his family, united with him in glory. He's saving that moment for when it can be savored together. So we're going to go to a time of communion. And in this, we're remembering those things, a look back, a reminder of where we are now, and a look to the future. And so if you're here and a believer, even if you're not part of this church and you're just visiting with us today, you are welcome to participate with us in the body. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, our encouragement to you is going to be to consider these things. And in particular, I would draw your attention to the first song that we sang and just read through the lines that are written there because they are an amazing declaration of the goodness and the love of God, the design and the intentionality that he has for your life. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, do you understand that you're not here on accident? That in God's sovereign plan and design, he's brought you here this morning to hear these words from him. Not my words, but his words. Because he's calling you and drawing you and pursuing you and chasing you down with an intense, eternal love. And so my encouragement is to spend some time considering those things. What we're going to do is we're going to pray together and then we're going to take just a, few, a couple minutes of silence together. And in that time, just enjoy the time that you have with God. We've got kids in the service with us and that's an awesome thing. And if they make noise, it's fine. Right? We're not standing on formality, but what we're looking to do is just to spend time with our Father. We're as a family together. And when the music starts, you can go ahead and make your way forward up the center aisle, receive the elements. And then please go around to the outside, back to your seats and wait to take those elements and we'll take them together in just a moment. But let's pray before we go into that silence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lessons of Solomon's life. We thank you for the reminder that they are of ways that we so often look to find happiness and meaning and purpose in the vapid and empty experience that this world has to offer. God, that you have intended for your sons and daughters something far more significant and divine. God, that you have intended for us deep eternal meaning, deep eternal experience, that you've extended that to us in this life through the offering of your son on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead, through the new life that he imparts in the Holy Spirit that resides in the hearts of those who know you. And God, that ultimately all of that is just a, is a seal and a sign of confidence of the fact that we will spend our eternity with you. God, I pray that to the extent that we're pursuing our meaning and our happiness in those things, that you would realize, or help us rather to realize sooner rather than later, the emptiness 
that this world has to offer and to find our meaning in you, to realize, as Lewis said, that if we couldn't find meaning in anything in this life, it must mean that we were designed for something outside of this world. And God, that we would look to the cross, that that emblem of suffering and shame is also the promise of love and grace and that you've given that freely to mankind. So God, help us to dwell on these things and to enjoy our time with you and to ponder these things to the extent that we struggle like Solomon to believe them. I pray for the skeptics and the cynics, God, that they would see a meaning and a purpose in the life that you offer and help all of us to find our rest in the place where we were designed to find it in you and in you alone. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.